Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to Far-Fetched Fables, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Wherever you are, wherever you're listening from, this is Far-Fetched Fables. Welcome to show number 123. Yes, that's correct, it's show 123. I'm your host, Nicola seaton Clark, and we're starting today with The Ifrit's Trial by Spencer Ellsworth, read by Heath Miller. Spencer lives in the top left corner of the USA, also known as the Pacific Northwest, with his wife and three children. By day, he works as a faculty admin combo at a tribal college on a Native American reservation, and by night, he writes fiction. His short fiction has appeared and is forthcoming at Tor.com, Lightspeed Magazine, Beneath Ceaseless Skies, and others. His first novels, a space opera trilogy called Starfire, will be released by Tor.com in 2017. Heath is an actor from Perth in Western Australia. Often found in theatres, recording studios, comedy clubs, television sets, convention centres and YouTube videos, Heath currently lives on an island off the coast of Maine with two improbably large cats, one improbably large dog, one rather small puppy and a brace of regular-sized chickens. You can follow him on Twitter and via his websites. Links are in our show notes. And now, The Ifrit's Trial by Spencer Ellsworth. Noble courtiers, wazirs, sultan, and lovely sultana, salam. Such fanfare for a poor Ifrit you have brought. I see you have seven red-robed sorcerers arrayed about the room, and seven white-robed holy men, each holding the seal of Suleiman, whom the Hebrews called Solomon the Wise, and chanting the Psalms of David, may peace fall upon him. In the yards of the palace you have arrayed seven times seven of these fork-bearded sorcerers, and seven times seven of these shaven holy men, and they each hold the seal and speak psalms and surahs. After the time I have spent in your service, noble sultan, 
do you think that I would be so foolish to not stand at my trial? I am a foolish afreet, this much is true, but there is enough sense in my head of air and fire to know that I owe you an explanation. This is the crime of which I stand accused. Of my own malicious nature, I cast a wicked spell upon the Sultana Jalima and caused her to love me. Such is the very enemy of truth. I testify that it is she who put a spell upon me, a poor Efreet, and my heart had no choice but to love her. I see your surprise and your suspicion. I beg you to hear me out, Sultan, for this is a tale unlike any you have heard, the tale of love between the mortal world and the immortal. Do I see a gleam in my Sultan's eye? I do. I shall continue and pray Allah for indulgence. I was a malicious spirit in my time, but no more wicked than any other. I never played with the souls of uncircumcised children at Iblis Shaitan's court, or sang songs to lure virgins into the fire. For my amusement, I tormented one pithy hermit. He would sit in repose and meditation, and I would contort myself into the shape of a nubile young virgin, or forty, performing acts of lasciviousness I thought were sure to crack his concentration. I appeared as wealth, as invading armies, as goat-horned beasts come to devour his testicles. But he never responded. He stared into the sky day after day. I was reduced to dancing about his hut, singing filthy songs about his mother. It took me three days to notice that the old raisin had died. When Suleiman went forth, gathering the evil spirits, I heard his call, and followed it out of loneliness. Suleiman told me there was an entire colony of hermits to the south, all young and not yet purged of temptation, but to get there I had to ride in his jar. So eager was I that I hardly thought of the contradiction in a colony of hermits. Allah be praised, for within the jar sealed by the wise king, I was given a thousand and more years to mull my sins and follies. I had been doomed by Allah the Great to a life of foolishness, and I swore to make restitution such as it would be. You look shocked, noble people. Does not the prophet, peace be upon him, say that the jinn has free will? and can disobey or obey Allah as mankind can? You remember, noble sultan, how eager I was to serve you on that day when you found and unstopped the jar in an old chest of curiosities. What a wise master I have! Faithless nobles and wazirs and sorcerers, little do you deserve his rule. In my time in the sultan's service, I have never known him to be inclined toward unfaithfulness. He has never taken another wife, nor concubine, and each morning he performs his ablutions without fail, and each day he falls upon his knees at the appropriate time. Such an example to us all. 
There is but one worldly thing that fascinates our sultan, and that is music. We all know the story of how our sultan found his sultana when she sang in the marketplace a mere peasant girl. Her song enchanted him such that he elevated her above all other women. And such songs I gave you, my sultan, did I not? So many that you would not have me leave your side. Songs that few mortal ears have heard. Songs from the court of Suleiman and from the queen of Sheba's train. Such favors I obtained for you. You all remember when the arrogant young prince of the north came here, demanding tribute from our sultan. I turned him into a heart and set him loose in the hunting grounds. What is that you say? Noble Wazir? Oh, yes, it is true that I did not tell the Sultan I had done so. But why bring worry when it is not necessary? The days of man are short and full of enough trouble. And you remember the avenging army that came after him, do you not? I transformed them into a great cloud of butterflies to beautify the Sultan's garden. Do not give me such a look. I transmuted their wives and children as well, and brought them to the garden so they could be happy together. You grow impatient, my sultan. Thus is the story of my love for the sultana. It happened that one day, as I sang by my sultan's side, my sultan's eyes grew heavy, and he drifted into sleep. Then there came a melody through the palace, such a melody as man could not bear to hear. It was a song of the jinn, a song from the court of Iblis the Shaitan himself, of such surpassing beauty and fierceness that any man who might hear with their waking ears it would instantly die. I immediately went in search of this song. For the first time, my king, I was inclined to leave your side. Imagine. My surprise when I found the sultana herself singing the song. What are you doing? I cried. Would you bring ruin upon this noble house? These were painful words for me to speak, for this song nourished me as water nourishes a man lost in the desert. I mean not to distress the sultana. May she be blessed. Should she remember things differently, I would remind my good ruler that such songs have an effect upon the memory as well. Though how could she stand the sound of it? Ah, I shall tell you the tale of the Song of Iblis. It happened that there was a man of the Hashishim, an assassin cruel and willful and cunning, who was given the assignment by his old man of the mountain to kill a certain princess. But when he looked upon the princess he was to kill, he loved her. Instead of stealing into her tent and smothering her, he stole into her tent and made such protestations of love that she loved him too. When they enjoyed each other, the roots of the mountain shook and the stars pinwheeled. It cannot be he said, as they lay in the aftermath of love, that we should love each other, but it cannot be that we should be parted. My husband, the prince, will have me murdered when he finds out about my unfaithfulness, the princess said. 
so will the old man of the mountain, the assassin said. But I know my way through the high lake country, where few men ever go. We can be happy and undisturbed there. Alas, for the old man of the mountain was not so easily avoided. No sooner had the assassin and the princess arrived in the lake country than they were attacked, and they fled just ahead of death. It happened that in this lake country there was a sacred pool, rumored to contain a fish with the spirit of an ancient sage. The assassin and the princess made for the pool, and upon reaching it, the assassin fell to his knees and pled Allah to be merciful, and then he plunged his hand into the pool. Allah be praised, for he withdrew the fish. I beg a boon of you, wise one, the assassin said. Bring down the attackers on our heels. You must gut me quickly, the fish said. Toss the entrails into the water, and my head onto the source of the spring. In my stomach is a green stone, which, when cracked, will release the sound of Iblis's court itself, but ensure that your ears are covered. How did the fish gain the green stone? Ah! Another story, that is, one of the ancient days when Iblis was tricked into telling seven tales and singing seven songs, and each tale and song was stored in one stone, to be broken at the end of time, when even jinn are judged, to stand witness against the hubris of Iblis, who refused to bow to Adam. The man who tricked Iblis Shaitan is a fine... But I see you wish for the story to continue as it was. Very well. The assassin gutted the fish and tossed the entrails into the water and the head into the spring. In this fish's stomach he found the green stone. As the other Hashishim approached, he tossed the stone to the ground, cracking it, and covered his ears. Such a look came over the faces of those Hashishim. Such rapture they had never imagined, even in their drug-fueled trances. No one can sing like Iblis Shaitan, not prophets nor peasants. It was a song of longing that stretched across ages, of the secret parts of the earth. It was the song of one who has seen all the beauty mankind has to offer. It was a song of the loneliness of immortality. It was a song of the greatest love in history, of lovers whom even Suleiman and his Queen of Sheba paled beside. When Hashishim died, such rapture was on their faces. As it happened, there was another who heard the song, but not yet human was she, the child in the princess's womb. And so our noble sultana came up in the world, knowing the song of the court of Iblis, not knowing how she knew it, and knowing she could only sing it to herself. Her whole life, as a poor girl after her parents died, she learned a thousand songs in order to gain her living. But this song in her heart, that cried to get out, she could never sing to another living being. I sat wrapped before her as she sang me the song, quietly, so quiet that no human might hear it. I begged her to sing it again, 
she was not through the song again when I knew what she had done. She had caused us to love each other. I succumbed. Do not be ashamed, dear Sultana. You have had the song of the jinn's court in your heart for all your life. It is natural that you might be drawn to one of us. Our love affair was brief, but the love of the jinn was everything the song said it would be, beyond mortal understanding. The love between the mortal and the immortal burns hot as the hearts of stars. When we left off our climax, our pleasure was like a falling star that weeps to fall to earth again. We could have melted gold in our loins. Sorcerers, stay back. You think your spells protect you? I could call upon mountains to crush this palace. I could whistle for a rock and a dragon. I am one of the jinn in allegiance with air and fire. But I shall not, for I honor my sultan and await his verdict. Do not worry yourself over much, sultan. Women are false, and this humble efreet apologizes. What is that? I can barely hear my sultan. Are you asking about the song itself? I have told you, it is a song of such love and longing that has never been heard on earth. Only angels, jinn, and Allah himself could stand the sound. You say you seek to hear the song. My sultan, the song will end your reign. It will keep you from Allah's presence, for is not suicide a sin? Forget the song. Unless the music is truly what you love, more than the sultana, more than life, more than Allah. For this is such music that even an eternity of misery cannot take away the moment of bliss when you hear it. But I stray, pass judgment upon me, my sultan. Tell me what you will. I can barely hear you, my sultan. What is that word? Speak your command, and I shall follow. Ah, the command is sing. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Spencer sent us this note about the Ifrit's trial. He said, This story was originally written for the Human Tales Anthology. The theme was Beware the Humans, and it told stories that fey creatures might swap to share the dangers of dealing with humans, the other side of fairy tales. I knew the anthology would probably get a lot of Eurocentric fantasy, so I went instead for the other side of the Arabian Nights, for a story in which an ifrit would use his own native cunning against the humans. We're going to conclude this week's episode with Last Age of Kings by Jeremy Saul. Born in 1995 with a twisted sense of humour and a taste for craft beer, Jeremy's fiction and non-fiction has appeared or is forthcoming in such venues as Nature, Nature, Physics, Abyss and Apex, Lightspeed, Strange Horizons and others. He is the fiction editor for a rubbish little-known podcast you probably haven't heard of called Starship Sofa, a writers of the future finalist and also has a useless BA in film studies and creative writing. He's written multiple novels and is on the hunt for literary representation. He carves out a living in Sydney, Australia, and you can find him on Twitter and at his blog via the links in our show notes. The story is read by Mark the Encaffeinated One Kilfoil. Mark loves fiction, so much so that he's written some, read quite a lot of it, and now narrates it. The programme director at a community radio station in New Brunswick, Canada, he can be heard frequently on CHSRFM, and two of his shows regularly appear as podcasts. Links to them are in our show notes. He likes cats enough to pet them but not enough to own one, and computers enough to own several but pet none of them, for which we are all very grateful. He will someday write a million words, but at this rate that will require life extension, so he eagerly awaits the ability to upload into a computer if that hasn't already happened, and this is all only a simulation. And now, The Last Age of Kings by Jeremy Saul. Fog approached the town. Roshar knew it would happen but it was still unsettling to see it touch the outskirts of his home. The day before, you could still see the fields, and the week before that, Lithgard was still visible if you looked hard enough. But it had been swallowed up by the spectral fog, scrubbing them out of existence. And soon it would be Northam's turn. He was almost glad that Robin never had to see this. Roshar slipped his mud-caked boots on, the door groaning as he opened it and bundled his furs around him, fighting to keep warmth in body. He started down the corkscrew staircase, shoes echoing the tower. Felix was sitting on a bench with his broadsword leaning against the table. His ringmail rattled as he lifted a rusted tankard to his cracked lips, drinking greedily. Roshar raised an eyebrow. Isn't it a little early for that? Aye, but who cares? It doesn't matter anymore. Might as well get a couple of drinks in while you can, eh? I heard the ale they serve in hell is piss poor. He chuckled as Roshar walked past him, shaking his head. There was only one hell that he knew of. The one that we're living in now. 
Roshar pushed open the tower's steel door. Wet gravel crunched under his feet as he made his way to Gaon's hut. He didn't care for the gods from the south that he worshipped, but the old mage had saved his life on more occasions than he cared to admit. He stepped around an empty shell of a burnt house and the splintered timber panelings of the market stalls, flakes of rust and ash floating down. He hammered on Gaon's door. Carved into the wood was the face of a solemn god staring back at him. The old man thought that gave him protection, warded off enemies. Gods don't protect anyone now. Not anymore. The door edged open, a draft of musty air floating his way. Ah, you're early. The olive-skinned mage was squatting on the floor, cocooned in woolen blankets, tending to the dying embers of his hearth. Couldn't sleep. Roshar closed the door and sat next to Gaon, lifting his fleece so Gaon could examine the fading scars on his chest. Gaon rubbed his bald head. Count yourself lucky you're still breathing, young man. The poison alone would have killed most men. He didn't doubt it. He hadn't even reached the mist when a volley of arrows spat out, thudding into flesh and bone. The arrows had slaughtered half his squad and injured others. He had managed to crawl close enough to the village for some scouts to find him. The ague had gripped him for a fortnight, sweating and vomiting and thrashing and twisting in Gaon's hut, while the old mage nursed him back to life. Robin, his newlywed wife, had come to visit him every day. Although he'd barely been able to register her presence, he knew she was there beside him. She had kept him strong. He clawed his way back through hell for her. And when he woke up, the old mage told him that the plague had taken her just minutes before. He sometimes wished that Gaon hadn't bothered. "'Did you learn anything from the arrows?' Roshar asked, lowering his shirt. "'You could say so.' Gaon waddled over to the bench and picked up the broken shafts with a strip of boiled leather for protection. He handed them to Roshar. "'Careful. There's still poison within them.' The metal was wreathed in what looked like twisted black thorns, but on closer inspection seemed to be some sort of runic inscriptions. The arrowheads themselves were slick and oily, tiny barbs jutting out from the head, tips swathed in sickly green syrup. "'Those barbs hooked themselves deep in your flesh,' Gaon murmured. "'They, too, were coated with poison. Ghastly stuff.' "'And the runes?' Just being near the thing made him feel ill, like something was niggling in his guts. He forked them back to the old mage and felt the sensation fade from his body. Can you read them? I've pored over every map and scroll I have and found nothing. He whisked the arrows away again. Best it stays that way. They sat there for a long time, soaking up whatever heat the miserable fire was prepared to give them. Roshar wasn't even sure how the old man managed to find dry wood. Everything in the town was drenched to the bone by the freezing weather. None of this was natural. Wasn't hell at least supposed to be warm? It was a while before either of them moved. Roshar shifted slightly as he turned to Gahan. I'm going back. I've got to try. The mage blinked. I didn't spend weeks raising you from the dead for you to kill yourself again. I have to do something, Roshar hissed. Anything is better than this. 
It had been building up for a while, but Robin slipping away had been a final blow. Whoever or whatever had destroyed this world, he wanted to spit them in the eye before he died. Hundreds of men walked into that mist, Yeon said, poking the fire with a blackened poker like he was dueling with it. Some of them tough as iron. Others held weapons older than themselves, and they all died the same. He cursed as the fire started to fade. What makes you any different, eh? I don't know, but I've got to try. Gaon murmured something, and the door swung open, icy wind sweeping into the hut and finding the holes in his clothes. The embers shriveled back in dismay. It seemed that the meeting was over. Roshar stood up, aching bones clicking with protest. "'You're going to die there,' mumbled Gaon. "'You won't be coming back.' "'I know.' Roshar stood on the edge of the field, watching the mist of the slits in his helm. Bodies were piled around him, some old, some new, rotting and letting off an odor that churned his stomach. Others were on fire, emitting a sickeningly appetizing scent. They had tried getting rid of the bodies that way at first, but now the corpses outnumbered the living by the hundreds, so no one bothered. Ravens cracked and hissed as he moved among them, flapping back to the gables of the church, munching on flesh and observing him with inky eyes. God, it stank. He moved closer to the mist's edge, long sword gripped firmly in his hand. His father had given it to him on his eighteenth winter. He'd never planned to use it. But ever since the blacksmith hung himself in the early days, weapons were in short demand. The ravens fluttered, mocking him with their cause. He glanced at them and out of the corner of his eye spotted something unusual shifting in the mists. There... A fury of arrows spat out, zipping toward him. He rolled to the side, arrows punching into corpses. He picked himself up, the mud trying to hold him down, as another volley came his way. He charged ahead, slashing out with his sword in the mist. He heard a wet crunch, blood running down the shaft of a freshly made corpse, toppling forward and splashed into the mud, flat bow in hand. Someone was yelling, ringing a bell. Rochar didn't wait. He sprinted forward, charging into the ethereal mist. He tottered into a small sentry tower, shocked faces staring at him. Zwang, a bolt, hissed past his cheek, and thudded into a parapet next to him. It should have broken off, but the arrow buried itself in the rock, hissing. A corrosive stench wafted over to him. Acid. The shooter was readying his crossbow, loading up the crank. Rochor ducked under the archway and sprinted up the moss-slathed stairs, sweat streaking down his chest. The shooter gaped in surprise when he reached the top, desperately fumbling with his weapon. Rochar lunged with the sword, bearing it in the sentry's heart with a squelch. Blood sprayed in his eyes, half-blinding him. Hiss! Two bolts spat out and hammered in the stonework, burning through the brick. There was the rattling of chainmail circling the stairs, pants and a torrent of curses— Rochar darted across the slippery stones and launched a kick just as the other two sentries rounded up, knocking them down in a stack. He twisted the sword and plunged downward, spiking through the two bodies. He found himself there what felt hours later, down on one knee, 
gloved hand wrapped around the hilt of his sword and sweat dripping down his face. He dragged in a shuddering breath, his lungs bleached of air. He yanked out the weapon, flicking away strings of blood. The bodies lay sprawled on the uneven flagstones, crimson dribbling down the uneven steps in a rhythmic pat, pat, pat. They must have been the ones firing the arrows from the mist. He lifted their helms, decaying faces staring back at him, their eyes hollow. They weren't people anymore, just lumps of meat, lumps of meat he'd killed. Something was strange here. The sky was covered with a layer of dense fog, only letting the faintest shavings of light to flit through. The way he came was still shrouded in the mist, as if it were thickening near a certain point and forming a barrier. It moved as he watched it. Closer and closer it curled forward, slowly but surely, eating up the world. Approaching the town, it took a few minutes to recognize Lithgard. The battlements were empty, the once finely kept entrance now caked in sopping mud and dripping with filth. The trees that once bore ripe fruit had dozens of bodies hanging from the twisted branches with thick ropes, swinging in the icy wind. He picked his way down the rolling step, sodden grass clinging to his legs. The town was nightmare made real. Bodies spilled from crude huts, limbs tangled and contorted like ruined dolls. Old houses had caved in, blood-spattered walls turned to splinters, wooden beams jutting at odd angles like broken fingers. There was a fire somewhere, charred wood billowing embers. Blood ran in little rivulets, seeping into the mud. Stones had been crushed, weeds and bramble climbing over the mess in an attempt to hide the chaos. Stray dogs scampered around, flea-bitten and mangy. And, of course, the ravens had shown up to enjoy their feast. There were probably more of them living than humans now. As he got closer to the tree, Roshar noticed that one of the bodies was much smaller than the others. It was a child. For a moment, Roshar saw his own son's face there, ginger-haired like his mother, grinning in the sun. But it was snatched away, back to the little pale corpse. Roshar felt tiny ice shards pick at his heart, memories holding him back. He shrugged them off and kept moving, feet sinking into the mud. There was someone kneeling down by the tree, head bowed. Roshar's hand found the hilt of his sword, lifting it out of the scabbard by a few centimeters. The figure didn't move. He walked over, curious and cautious. It was a woman. Hands clasped together, eyes turned up at the tree. Roshar reached out and took her by the shoulders. She didn't even flinch. She hasn't moved for days. Roshar's heart lurched and he drew his sword, spinning around. She's not going to move now. Roshar retreated, searching for the source of the voice. A bored sigh. Up here. Roshar craned his neck upward. On the second story of a house sat a man, his once white clothes tattered and soaked in muck. The furs and arctic fox were draped around his shoulders. The whole front of the house had been ripped away, the bones picked clean. The man grumbled again, taking a swig of something foul from a bottle. He got Roshar looking. You want some? Won't say no. Roshar just managed to catch the flask. He took a long drink, sour wine burning down his throat and warming his stomach. The man hopped down and retrieved the bottle. 
Glad to see some help come along. He swept his hand around the town. Might want to work on the timing. What's she doing? Roshar asked, pointing at the woman kneeling by the tree, lips quivering. Praying. Another swig. She thinks that if she remains locked in prayer with the gods, they'll bring her son back. A bitter laugh. There ain't no gods here. Just me and the ravens, of course. Who are you? Roshar queried, still on edge. Gilliam. A long swig this time. Used to be a watchman for this glorious hellhole you'll see before you. I licked purple liquid from his lips. Of course, that changed when they came. Who came? Not sure. Came with the mist. Carried no banner, no sigil. Swig, slosh, swallow. They pillaged the town, slaughtered us all. Women and children alike. We barely even had a chance. We've been hiding in here ever since. He walked into the house, beckoning to Roshar. And then I found this one. Chained to the wall by his wrists was a dead soldier. Bloody daggers were strewn about. Roshar stepped down next to him. He noticed the man was missing a couple of fingers. You can ask him questions, but I don't think he's going to answer. Another swig. Not anymore. Did he talk? Not at first. Gilliam cursed and hurled the bottle to the ground, scattering glass shards across the floor. He retrieved another from the cupboard, popping it open with blackened teeth and spat out the cork. Took a while, but he talked in the end. Said that he came from the King's Guard. The King's Guard? That didn't make any sense. Why would the King's Guard do this? That's what I asked him. He just told me to ask King Valath when I see him. Then he died. He didn't say anything about the mist. He did. Said it was the king's doing. And his pet bitch. Hmm. It was better than nothing. Roshar stood up, his mail clinking. Then I'd better get going. Where? The castle, obviously. The door squeaked with protest as Roshar shoved it open and trudged outside, the rancid air filling his nose. Gilliam followed, still drinking. If the answer's there, I'll find it. Gilliam snorted wine out of his nostrils. He was still chuckling as he scraped it away. You're going to march up to the castle and, and interrogate the king? He shook his head in bewilderment. Roshar stood there, silent. A smile wilted. You're serious? Got any better ideas? Over the hills a wolf let loose a deathly howl. We'll all be dead soon enough. I, true, Gilliam seemed to be thinking. Oh, well, might as well go down fighting. What? I'm not going to die here. Gilliam flung the bottle away and scooped up the bearded axe leaning against the door. Who wants to live forever, eh? Besides, you need someone to watch over you, right? Roshar bit his lip. He couldn't very well say no, and whatever happened, he didn't want to die alone. The town went downhill from that point. Carts and bloodied weapons littered the streets, the flagstones painted with sickly green moss. Glass crunched underfoot. And everywhere he looked, there were cudgeled bodies, all rotting and stinking, shriveling to a leathery brown. The sight made his skin crawl and his veins prickle. Gilliam almost seemed to enjoy his discomfort, clapping him on the back like an older brother. 
Roshor forced himself not to recoil. You get used to it after a while. He stepped over a stack of shattered shields, lovingly emblazoned with house motifs. It does get lonely. The dead don't say much. Roshar was beginning to realize that Gilliam wasn't quite sane. This way. The man beckoned to what looked like the remains of a forge. The smelter hadn't been heated up in some time now. Roshar followed him inside the house, still uncertain. It was a somber sight, seeing all the weapons collecting dust and slowly starting to rot. Slits of gray light poured in through the windows, drawing pale lines across the flagstones. Roshar ran his fingers along the row of swords, shards of rust peeling away at his touch. Here. Gilliam threaded his way through the back of the shop, fingers finding a hidden door in the small crevice. He flung it open, dust stirring in the watery gloom. You might want to get one of those. Gilliam pointed to several torches hanging on the wall, tips swathed in bandages. Roshar fetched two of them, soaking them in the basin of black oil. How do you propose we light them? asked Roshar. Gilliam didn't answer. He clenched his fists and murmured quietly, beads of sweat forming on his brow. His palms snapped open, and the torches blazed to life, chasing the darkness away. Roshar looked at Gilliam. You're a fire mage, aren't you? Is it that obvious? Gilliam scooped up a torch for himself, the light playing sinister shapes across his face. I was taking lessons. I was damn good at it, too. Then my master saw fit to die, and that was it. He beckoned toward the back room. Roshar noticed a gaping hole in the floor. You coming, or what? Gilliam hopped into it, landing with a thud. Roshar cursed and followed him down. Roshar kept up with Gilliam's pace, maintaining a slow jog through the passageway. It was threateningly claustrophobic in here. The light peeled blackness away from the walls as they advanced. How do you know about this? Roshar asked. Gilliam chuckled. Used it often myself back in the day. Pay the princess a visit now and then. When she learned of her arranged marriage, they became less frequent. He shrugged. I expect she's dead now. You think the king dead as well? Roshar brushed filthy cobwebs out of his face. He noticed that the trail was slowly inclining. He was also starting to have that prickly feeling in his system, like the one in Gaon's hut when he brought out the arrows. It was only mild, but it pulled him nonetheless. He squashed it down the best he could. Dunno, you heard what the soldier said. We'll go from there, the man barked out a brittle laugh. <laughs> what do we have to lose? After what seemed like hours, days, months, years, Gilliam halted. The dancing flames exposed a wall with a rickety ladder leading upward. We're here. Gilliam clamped a hand over his torch, gutting it out. He didn't seem to be in the slightest pain. He placed one foot on the lowest rung and started to climb with slow rhythm. The thing didn't look safe, bound together with string and twine, but it was the best thing they had. Roshar followed him up, the tortured wood groaning beneath his feet. Stop! Roshar froze, his fingers wrapped around a rung. Gilliam seemed to be pushing against something hard above them, swearing and grunting from the effort. At last it seemed to give away, and he shoved the hatch open. Light poured in, sweet and delicious. Roshar clambered up the last few rungs and hoisted himself out of the hole. 
he found himself in what seemed to be a large storage room. Steel-rimmed kegs of mead, sour wine, and dark ale stacked along the walls. They'd been chopped into splinters, the colors gushing out and bleeding out of the floor. Light eased through a stained-glass window. All that fine drink all gone to waste. Gilliam nudged an empty barrel with his foot. Aha! No wonder I couldn't lift the hatch. He pointed to the shrunken corpse curled up on the ground. Out of all the places to die... Roshore peeked through the window. They were high up, probably on one of the castle's top floors. He could see the yards, towers, and steeples, but the distance was obscured by the mist, thick, hazy, and impenetrable as always. Oh, he murmured to himself, this was not good. What is it now? Gilliam demanded. Look, Rochard pointed downward. Marching in the streets, in the courtyards, in the flat roofs, on the battlements, were countless guards, all armed and armored. There didn't seem to be an objective, any order, rank, or discipline. Balliste sat useless, and Gibbet still held ancient skeletons in their bullies. They plodded around, sitting about and leaning against the walls. Good thing we didn't come that way. Gilliam sauntered towards the door. Be coming? Can't you feel that? The sensation was back, and it wasn't just uncomfortable this time. His mouth felt dry, and his intestines seemed to be trying to tie themselves into bows. It was working its way under his veins, turning his blood to gravel. Gilliam gave a low chortle. Course I can. Means we're getting close. He swung the door open and made a mocking bow. After you. The scent of death hung heavily in the air. The hallways were smeared with grime, bodies pinned to the walls with iron arrows. What was once ornate furniture had been splintered into countless wooden fragments. Paintings had been stripped down and shredded, vases smashed, old plates of armor and bloodied gold coins scattered about the floor. Rochard had never seen so much gold, and there was no one to use it, no one to spend it. Ah! Several soldiers are sprinting down the hall, rusty armor clanking as they moved, brandishing halberds and falchions. Gilliam stood there, his fists clenched, perfectly still, with his eyes fastened shut. What the hell are you doing? Roshar yelled. No answer. Then Gilliam's eyes flipped open and beamed a crimson red. He stepped forward and clapped his hands together with a boom. A fire sprouted up in the middle of the soldiers, engulfing them with a roaring, scorching cocoon. Tapestries on the walls were eaten away in seconds. Men reeled away, burning and screaming and tumbling. It didn't take long before they were all a smoldering pile of bodies, ropey coils of smoke spiraling to the blackened roof. Gilliam turned around, sweat gushing out of his pores. He nodded toward the sizzling bodies. Hungry? Roshar just shook his head and tried not to gag. Gilliam chuckled, then led the way through the arching doorway, revealing more staircases. This had to be the way. Roshar was aware of the pain mounting with almost every step, scrubbing away at his bones. Gilliam twirled his axe. You might want to step aside. Moi? Roshar threw himself forward as a portcullis gate guillotined down, bolts slotting into place and dividing them from the castle's entrance. Gilliam's face split into a grin. Tapping the broken wheel spoke, the rusty chains collapsing on the floor like a lifeless snake. He gave the humongous gate a rattle. It refused to budge. He grinned again. 
Now, let's see them try to follow us. And what if we want to get out again? Asked Roshar curtly. Gilliam just laughed. Gilliam stood in front of an ordinary-looking iron-bound door. Can you feel it? Roshar nodded as the pain flushed through him like a river, damn near forcing him to his knees. They had to be close. Gilliam scraped open the door. It seemed to be a medium between a library and a laboratory, bursting with old tomes and manuscripts. There had to be thousands of them, black ink on faded parchment, recalling the histories and the songs and the kings and the battles, none of which mattered anymore. The desks were cluttered with dried herbs and resin, gnarled roots and metallic utensils. Drawers half hung open like tongues, more papers spilling out. And in the middle was a woman... She was small and lithe, her hair flowing down in beautiful ebony waves. She turned around and gazed at him with brilliant blue eyes that pierced into his heart. In her hand was a small green herb. She placed it back on the bench with care. Hello there. It was the king's doing and his pet bitch. Who are you? Rochard demanded, drawing his sword as spikes of pain skewered through him. Kill her, now! Gilly made an attempt at springing forward, axe in hand, yet he seemed to freeze like an ant in amber, his silhouette outlined with a rippling of air. "'Don't listen to him, my dear. He's not important.' Her voice wafted over to him in silky ribbons. He found his sword grip loosening, clattering to the ground. "'You're here now. That's all that matters.' Roshar nodded vigorously, turning away from Gilliam. "'Yes.' Yes, that's right. He found himself drawn to her, the mysterious woman with a voice like the gods. How could one possibly resist? Come closer, slowly now. Roshar obeyed, hanging on every word. She padded toward him, something in her hand. A familiar voice called him from far away. What was it saying? Roshar shoved it away. It didn't matter. Nothing mattered anymore. Everything would be fine. Her body was the center of the room, center of the entire world. She smiled, subtle sunlight glistening in her hair with an indigo shimmer. She lifted her hand, showing a dagger. But that didn't matter. She wouldn't hurt him. She couldn't. Poor fool, she said, her voice draping over him like honey, swathing him up in syrupy bliss. It's too late for you. It's too late for us all. She raised the dagger. Gilliam let out an ear-splitting roar, snapping Roshar out of his trance. He remained rooted to the ground, yet managed to swing his arms. His axe went scything through the air in a whistle. The woman sprung backward with an impossible agility, the glinting blade nearly cleaving her in half. It smashed into the table with a shower of splinters, throwing up a cloud of resin. You! A cold smile twisted on her face as she spun around, flexing her hand to fling the dagger in Gilliam's direction. Roshar fumbled for his sword, yanking it out with a sharp scrape, and without thinking thudded it into the bridge of her skull. He staggered backward, the world swimming around him as white noise whined in his ears. He sucked in a ragged breath and looked at the woman, the sword well and truly buried in her head. She had to have been a mage of some sort, a powerful one, too. Was she the cause of all this? That wench has a good throwing arm. With a lead heart, Roshar noted the dagger protruding from Gilliam's chest, wedged between his ribs. He collapsed on the stone floor, breathing hard. Roshar knew it was over for him. 
They both knew it. He stooped low, holding Gilliam's coarse hand as the life poured out of him. You finish this, you hear? ordered Gilliam through bloody teeth. Find King Valeth and kill him. I didn't come this far for nothing. He spat weakly, tears welling in his roomy eyes. Leave me. I'll see my family soon. Roshar nodded, swallowing a lump in his throat. He'd seen many men die, some old, some young, all trying to put a brave face on their final moments, trying to be heroic men. They never succeeded. Never. No matter how bold and hardened, in their final moments, they all wanted their mothers to be in the arms of their loved ones. Roshar stayed with Gilliam, this madman who'd gone through hell with him. Roshar stayed with him until he stopped breathing. There was no better place to find a king than in the throne room. It was almost anticlimactic, seeing King Valeth sitting on his rusted throne, his pathetic figure swaddled in faded robes. He'd been a notoriously obese man, his face pasty and rosy. Now he was bitterly thin, loose flesh spilling down in fleshy folds. He didn't even look up as Roshar approached. The bodies of his vanguard were piled against the throne, a mountain of rusted mail and great swords. Someone finally made it. His voice was low and quiet, but somehow it carried an eerie force that echoed through the entire room. I'm afraid you're too late. Your mage said the same thing, said Roshar. A javelin of pain shot through him. He absorbed the impact with a shudder. Valeth looked up, revealing a sunken face with hollow eyes, the color of festered flesh. Is she dead? A pause. It should have been done years ago. Roshar blinked. What? It was her, Valeth hissed, his voice grating against Roshar's skull. That stupid woman and her experiments. They caused all this. How? It got out of control, Valoth murmured. We just wanted to unravel the enigmas of the world. But the power was too great to contain. So many things went wrong. So much death. That ghastly poison. He nodded weakly toward the glass window. It took hold of the kingdom. It created the mist. It drove men mad, turned them into the bloodthirsty soldiers you fought your way through. Roshar stepped forward and was immediately hit by a sudden force that ripped through his stomach, almost doubling him over. He gritted his teeth and took another step, the fibers in his legs burning. There has to be a way, he rasped, to stop it. There was. The king shut his eyes and lowered his voice down to a whisper. I was greedy. I saw the power she created and took it. I didn't know how powerful it would become. Now it resides in me. I'm its vessel. He hunched over with a hacking cough, putrid saliva dripping from his lips. 
I could have halted it if I took my own life, but I could not perform the deed. Now I don't have the strength to stand up. His eyes seemed to bore into Roshar, burn through him. It scrapes a man clean, gives him power, and tears it away, piece by piece. Roshar felt a sickly stuff seeping down his throat, spreading through his system. He had to hurry. I can still do what you couldn't. Valeth froze, then gave the faintest of nods. Yes, do it quickly now. Roshar tightened his grasp on the sword's hilt. Where would you like me to strike? No! Valeth's voice intensified, a raw lust for control that nearly blasted Roshar off his feet. His face sagged, his eyes becoming black as night, black as ink. Don't you dare take my power away! The pain was nearly engulfing him now, his muscles contracting in spasms, bones rattling in their cages. Tears of agony were trickling down his cheeks, old wounds weeping blood. He started up the dais, the thrumming in his skull mounting by the moment. Every cell in his body begged him to leave, to turn away and run. He thought of Robin and the way she would smile at him. She started to slip away between his fingers like ashes in the roaring wind. He clamped his teeth together and latched onto her memory, the last thing he had, and took another step, and another, and another. There was a shriek from Valeth as he readied his sword, nearly blowing out his eardrums. Don't! Stop! He was scrambling back, trying to hug his throne for protection. It's mine! Roshar didn't waste his energy on words. Gathering up every drop of strength he had left, he twisted his sword and pierced it right into Valeth's heart. The world exploded in a suction of dark energy, a whirlwind of glistening dust. Roshar screwed his eyes shut and tightened his grasp on his sword's grip. Fool! The king screamed, barely audible above the howling. Now it passes into you. Nothing has changed. Roshar shook his head, gritting his teeth. He would not take it. He would not cave in like Valeth. Roshar sunk to one knee as the dark venom coiled and writhed around him, trying to find a way in. He squeezed his eyes shut as it burned down his throat expanding into his lungs and spreading out through his body, finding every crevice, every vein, and every cell, filling him with the poison. The king flopped back on his throne, dead. And then the universe was quiet. Roshar felt his heart boom in his chest, pumping toxic blood into his body. He raised his head, slowly, slowly, and gazed through the slits of his helm. And he saw it, no, felt it, the power the king spoke of. It shifted in the air, thrashed inside him, begging to be harnessed, to be taken and used. It needed to have a home, have a vessel. Roshar pinned the power within his sights, a loose thread that coiled out to him, seeking him. Roshar swallowed a mouthful of sour saliva, fixing his eyes on the rust-eaten throne. He shouldn't take it. He should just let the poison choke him. But how he wanted that power. How he deserved it. Mine. He scrambled to his feet, struggling as he shuffled toward the throne, dragging Valoth's corpse from the seat and leaving him slumped on the floor, one more body on the pile. He planted himself down on the seat and closed his eyes. 
his body a hollow cavern that echoed with darkness. The power took root in him, hooking itself deep in his body. He reached for the tiny thread of power that dangled in front of him, holding on for all he was worth. He was his, and his alone. No one was ever going to take it from him. Never. This was his world now. Thank you, Jeremy and Mark, for a dose of nihilism and mayhem to get us through the rest of the week. If you'd like to share your thoughts on this or any of our stories, you can leave your comments on the Triple F website, our Facebook page, or on Twitter. We love hearing from our listeners, and we want to know your thoughts on our content. Feel free to visit our Patreon page and make a donation should the mood strike you. Please remember, however, that Farfetched Fables operates under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 license, which means you can download the content and share it all you like, but you cannot change it and you cannot sell it. And please be sure to give credit where that credit is due. All other copyright remains that of the authors. Violators will hear the song of Ibli. This podcast is brought to you through the hard work of all of us here at the District of Wonders. But special thanks go to my editor, Gary Dowell, and sound engineer extraordinaire, Mark Zanfardino. You guys rock. I'm off to go and play Tetris with my calendar. I'll see you all next week. Bye now. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.